Well, good morning. Let us uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you, God, for a special day to come together. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the assembling, the, the privilege that we have to be together to worship you. Um, God, I thank you for the folks that you have brought here. The encouragement that they have been in my own life, Lord, as I reflect on the passage before us this morning. Lord, I am, I am renewed in my thanksgiving for the impact that the, these saints have had in my life, Lord. And I pray that we would be encouraged and challenged by your word, Lord, that this church would strive to function as you have called us, Lord, for your glory, so that when we are obedient and submissive to you, when we act as you would have us, when we interact with each other as you have instructed us to, Lord, that you would bless that and that your power would be made evident through the working of the gospel. We praise your name. Amen. Well, every Sunday morning, folks from all around our country get their family ready for another Sunday morning church service. In thousands of churches, just like ours, there are countless people meeting just like we are right now. While I can say with certainty that not all of the churches that are meeting right now are functioning as the Bible would say that they should, I would say that many people are gathering for a lot of the same reasons we do. I love coming to church. I love being with the saints. I love seeing everyone, encouraging each other, singing with each other, listening to the word of God be preached together, praying with each other. I love seeing and hearing what God is doing in each other's lives. I love seeing how God is growing and challenging each of us and challenging our passion for God's glory, cultivating it in our hearts. I know that I am not unique in these convictions. I know that this is not something that is special about me. And I know this because I see this in many of you. These are not singular passions that I share, but passions that are shared by many people here this morning. I understand that we realize that church is more than just a social club. It's more than a social gathering of like-minded people have similar philosophies and convictions. It's more than a box to be checked off of some religious checklist. Church is more than that. But unfortunately, that is the way that many people around our country and our culture approach church. Last year, I had the opportunity to bring us to Hebrews chapter 10, where we were challenged with the charge to not neglect, not to neglect the meeting together, but that when we are together, the purpose is to stir one another up to love and good works. This morning, I want to continue to explore the subject of our role in the church within the book of Hebrews. And what we will see this morning is that when we do gather together, when we are coming together as a united church body, that it's, it is for an express purpose and that there is, it is more than just singing and praying and listening to preaching, although those are certainly great things. What we see in Hebrews chapter 3 and what we will go through this morning is that we see when we are together, the reality is, is that eternity hangs in the balance. That it is not just another Sunday, it is not just another day of the week when we are together. That when we are together, we are exercising lives that have an eternal consequence we'll see that the role that we play in each other's lives have far more importance than we may realize. Now, the author of Hebrews puts forward the children of Israel. I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And Pastor Neil uh, just read Psalm 95, which is where uh, the, the author of Hebrews is quoting from uh, in the, the passage just previous to the one that we're going to be in this morning. But we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, concentrating our time on verses 12 through 14. But just prior to that, you'll see a quotation taken from Psalm chapter 95. 
And this is warning believers about the danger of letting sinful thought and practice go unchecked in our hearts. Despite everything that God had done for the nation of Israel and on their behalf, a pattern of unbelief and rebellion would continue to go unchecked in their hearts throughout the conquest of the land. This generation saw God provide for them miraculously on a daily basis. When they needed food, God would drop food from the sky. When they needed water, God would make water spout out of a rock. When they needed for God to defeat an enemy, he said, walk around a city and yell and blow horns and I will knock the walls down. Throughout their time in the wilderness, their shoes did not wear out. God was sovereignly and perfectly providing for them on a daily basis. They saw God wipe out armies. They saw God consume mountains and fire and smoke, swallow the rebellious in the, into the middle of the earth. Never mind that God would just provide their daily needs on a regular basis. And the caution is that even in these circumstances, that the human heart is prone to wander. The human heart left unchecked will go astray. And that is what the psalmist is warning about in Psalm 95. And we see the end of Psalm 95 quoted here in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation. And said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now with this example in mind, the attention is turned presently to the church. To the modern church in order to caution us from making the same mistakes that the children of Israel made. It is important for us to remember that our hearts are just as prone to unbelief and sin And sin is just as deceitful today as it was then. And in God's abundance grace, he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He has placed us within the body of the church. We have a long race in front of us to endure. But the good news is that we don't run this race alone. I'm so thankful for my brothers and sisters who have had a place in my own life, who have encouraged me and pushed me onward and prodded me on to keep the faith and to run the race with endurance. And in this passage before us this morning, we're going to see three corporate mandates to ensure that we run the race with endurance and that we enter the rest with God. So we're going to see three corporate mandates in the text in front of us today. One in verse 12, one in verse 13, and one in verse 14. The first corporate mandate that we are given is to examine your heart. Examine your heart. It says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The first corporate mandate, and when I say corporate mandate, these are not individual commands. These are commands that are given to a church body as a whole, to all believers. We see this where he says in the beginning of verse 12, take care brothers, saying be concerned This is a sharp warning that the author is bringing us. We're not to think that what happened to the children of Israel is some anomaly that could never take place among us. For those that have been saved for some time, the unbelief that we see exercised within the nation of Israel, we have seen exercised among others that we once called brothers who walk now contrary from the cross. If you walk with God long enough, you will see that occur. And that is exactly what we are being warned against. We are in charge to take care, wake up, be concerned, brothers. And what is, what is it that we are to be concerned about? What is our care to be focused on? It says that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. 
an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, when anyone falls into sin, it is never that you wake up one day and say, I am going to backslide. I am going to fall into sin. I am going to turn my life over to the sin which has been tempting me. No one ever wakes up one day thinking that. It is a subtle, slow process that our flesh takes us to when we surrender to it. And this evil and unbelieving heart that we are cautioned against, it is this this pernicious, evil, and without faith heart. It is not one that is somewhat damaged, somewhat sinful. It is perniciously evil. It is where it says an unbelieving heart. It is literally ah pistis, which is without faith. Like an atheist is without ah theist, without God. This is someone who wakes up one day and suddenly realizes that their faith is bankrupt. And the warning here is that any of us are susceptible to this happening to us. The charge is that we all must be on guard against an evil and unbelieving heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And we know that Israel's springs had run dry because they did not guard their heart. James 1.14 tells us that each person is tempted and lured away and enticed by their own desires, by their own hearts left unchecked. All sin at its source is an unbelief of God. It is not believing God for whom he says he is, for who he reveals himself to be, and it always brings destructive consequences, namely falling away from the living God. The reality that is being warned of here is that this sort of thing could arise in any of us. There isn't anyone exempt from this danger here among us this morning. One doesn't have to live the Christian life very long to recall the names and the faces of those who have gone in this direction and now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And it is remarkable to think that a faith that once burned hot would once be drawn away from the living God. But that is where an unbelieving heart drags us. It leads us to fall away from the living God. This fall away is where we get the word apostasy from in the Greek. Kenneth Wiest says the act of someone who has previously subscribed to a certain belief and who now renounces his former professed belief in favor of some other, which is diametrically opposed to what he believed before. Again, that is not something that one wakes up one morning and decides I'm going to be diametrically opposed to what I once believed. But what the Lord is cautioning us with this morning saying, Take care lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, just as there was in the nation of Israel. There was an unbelieving heart that led them away from the living God who had provided for them miraculously on a daily basis. I would encourage you real quick, keep a thumb or finger in Hebrews chapter Three, and turn back to Numbers, the book of Numbers. Numbers 14. The people of Israel in the wilderness are reacting to the poor report that the spies came back after entering into the land and they said there are giants there. It's going to be impossible. We're better off if we were just back in Egypt. They ignore the counsel of Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb 
said in verse nine, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Saying, look, God is on our side. God has already delivered us from so much. The most powerful army on the face of the earth got swallowed up by water in our dust. God is capable of delivering us now. These these nations, they're just bread for us. They will be consumed by God. Verse 10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. This is the nation of Israel. This is exactly what happened time and time and time again. Where they are reminded of the truths of the word of God, of the faithfulness of God. But they ignore the counsel and they listen to their fear. They listen to their sin because their hearts went unchecked. If this happened to the nation of Israel who held the power of God on display on a daily basis over the course of years, it can certainly happen to us. Turn back to Hebrews. As you turn back, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that these things happened in Israel. The things that we read in Numbers and the rest of the Old Testament, they happened as an example They're written down for our instruction that we can learn from them. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We're given the example of the nation of Israel to humble us. To make sure that we are not confident in our own standing. Does this mean, you may be thinking... You may be questioning, does this mean that we can lose our salvation? Does this mean that we are saved and that we can fall into apostasy and then we can fall away from salvation and wake up one day and the belief that we once held true and firm, we will now lose? That the living God who once we new and experienced and worshiped that we will not have a concern with anymore. I'll just encourage you to hold on to that thought until verse 14. But the second corporate mandate that we see in verse 13 is that we are to exhort one another. We are to exhort one another. So first, the first charge is that we are to examine our hearts. The second is that we are to exhort one another. Verse 13 says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But exhort one another. There's a transition here. How do we keep ourselves from falling into an evil and unbelieving heart? We see and we are concerned. I don't want that for myself. I'm sure you don't want that for yourself. How do I keep myself from falling into an unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God? By exhorting one another. This word for exhort is one that may be familiar to you. It's parakaleo which literally means to come alongside of. It's the idea you're probably familiar with, putting your arm around someone, counseling them, encouraging them, and guiding them. For reproof and instruction, but in a brotherly and loving way. And this is a present active imperative. That this is not something that we are to exercise once and then check it off a checklist. This is to be the pattern of behavior in our lives, ongoing, we are to be exhorting one another every day. This is a call for sincere involvement in the lives of other believers. This cannot be achieved one morning a week. It is not enough to come to church, to sing the songs, to drop a check into a plate, listen to a sermon, and then leave and come back the next week. It is impossible 
to presently, actively exhort one another if you are just present with other believers one morning a week. It's just impossible. It is not possible to fulfill this command. So let us consider this and take this to heart, knowing what is at stake. That our hearts are prone to fall away from the living God. Sanctification, that is the process of becoming more like Christ, growing into the image of Christ. Sanctification is a corporate pursuit, not an individual pursuit. What do I mean when I say that? Sanctification is a corporate pursuit that God uses other believers within the body of Christ to achieve salvation to bring us more into the image of His Son together. A person does not transform into the image of Christ by themselves. But God has designed and grows His church sovereignly through the ministry of the Word of God through the lives of other believers. When we take a new member... They come up and they stand up in front, begrudgingly usually. And we are given a charge, right? And one of the pastors will be up here. They'll give a charge to the members. And they'll give a charge to all the other members. And the charge, the last one, says, Do you commit to faithfully teach, to admonish, to exhort and encourage each one of these individuals with great patience and instruction. Now, how many of you have said, I do, to that charge? Just one, two. Okay, two of you. Excellent. All right, three. I see three hands. Okay. It sounds like more people normally say, I do. Maybe those people, those four people that raised their hands are just louder than everyone else. But I believe, if I remember correctly, and maybe just some shy people not wanting to raise their hands and realize that that was the audience participation portion of the program, uh, that we all say, I do. We all say, yes, I will do that. So you're all on board. You've already all committed to doing what exactly what the Bible is telling us to do this morning. We have already all committed to exhort and encourage one another. And that cannot happen one morning a week. When are we supposed to do this? Well, simply says, as long as it's called today. Every day. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Today, these echo what is said in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice. This is echoing what the psalmist says in Psalm 95. The urgency here is that today this battle is needing to be waged. The same urgency that we see in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need today. I don't need tomorrow's grace today. I need today's grace today. And we need today's encouragement today. This is a call for the church to live and function as a family that it is. Now, my, my family, it's funny, my, when my wife and I got married, our families function very differently. Uh, when, when I was uh, 18, I moved out to California and I was out there for 10 years and months would sometimes go by without me ever calling my family. And that was normal. It wasn't like abnormal. And I'm sure my mom would have welcomed an extra phone call once in a while, but she didn't call me either. So two ways, right? Uh, but this was the age before cell phones. Uh, and I, I even remember one day uh, I was headed up to San Francisco for a week and I had failed to let my family know, hey, just in case you need to get a hold of me, I'm not going to be in LA. I'm going to be in San Francisco. And so I found a payphone, which are those old relics that are usually behind convenience stores and gas stations that have a wire attached to a device that looks like an old telephone and you put coins in and you call. But 
my, my wife's family, when we got married and my wife moved out with me to California, would talk approximately 80 times a day. Uh, that there was constant communication, right? And so families have very different levels of, uh, of comfort with communication, of what we're used to. In my family, we have the two extremes. Uh, that in the church, in the, in the body of Christ, the family that we are brought into through the blood of Christ, the encouragement that we are to give one another is to happen every day as long as it is called today. Have you ever woken up in the morning and it not be today? No. It is always today. It is always today. This is a lifestyle. This is not a hobby. This is not a recreational social club that we are involved in. Now, the early church would be in each other's homes on almost a daily basis. Many of the churches that we would see the Apostle Paul or other apostles writing to were in city atmospheres. They were very tightly intertwined. You would see whole households come to Christ through repentance. They needed each other on a daily basis. They lived in the face of opposition all around them, oftentimes losing Everything for the sake of Christ. Losing all family attachments, all business attachments. Being scorned by everyone in their life. And the reality was they needed one another because they didn't have anyone else in their life that would support them. Now this isn't to say that we need to actually physically be with one another on a daily basis. But thanks be to God that we are able to encourage each other on a daily basis through many phases of technology. We have many different ways of communicating with one another and encouraging one another today. God has sovereignly designed that. But too often, we presume on the certainty and the opportunity of tomorrow. Tomorrow, I will reach out to that person. Tomorrow, I will encourage that person. I have a concern that I see this person drifting. I have, maybe I haven't seen them at church. They, they haven't been themselves. Tomorrow, I will reach out and I will encourage them. Too often, we presume on the reality and the assurance of tomorrow. The only certainty is that we have Today. One commentator, Homer Kent, said, such an attitude is required daily because the problem exists daily. The bracing effect of faithful Christians upon one another is one of the great values of the local church. Through regular and frequent gatherings, believers can share one another's burdens and provide spiritual encouragement to the weak and to the disheartened. We need one another on a daily basis because the temptations of sin come on a daily basis. That is the reality of the church. Now, what is at stake? Why do we exhort one another on a daily basis? As long as it's called today, what does this, what does this prevent us from? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must be about the business of warning each other about how deceitful sin is. That sin never delivers on the satisfaction that it promises. There's a well-known quote that says, it takes you further than you want to go, holds you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. That is the only promise that sin has. Now, how, how is sin so deceitful? I was thinking about this and came up with a list of things that I think these are the things that some of the, some of the things that we should be reminding each other of on a regular basis when we do have those interactions. And maybe when, when we voice that, look, I know I'm being, I'm being tempted to sin. I know that there's a pressure right now that I'm sensitive to please pray for me. How is sin 
so deceitful. What is the deceitfulness of sin? James 1.14 says that we deceive ourselves. We are lured and enticed by our own desires, James says. Oftentimes, we can be blind of this in our own life, and we need the presence and correction of other people who know us to expose it in love. Left to ourselves, we are more likely to pursue the desires of the flesh. Secondly, we are deceived by the deceitfulness and the vanity of the world around us. This world is nothing but deceitfulness. Everything that comes out of the world is a lie. We need each other in our lives to convince us of the siren's call that the world is is singing out to us and to remember that it only brings the destruction of the rocks and the shipwreck of our faith. We need to encourage one another to fix our eyes onto Jesus, the author and the finisher, the completer, the perfecter of our faith. We are constantly focusing and fixing our gazes, not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient. They are here and they are gone. They are a vapor. They are elusive. They are nothing. And our flesh gets so allured by nothing. By things that are bankrupt. Satan has had thousands of years to cultivate a perfect plan to which to tempt us to waste our lives and to distract us. We live in a culture that is perfecting that on a daily basis. We need each other in our lives to remind ourselves of the deceitfulness of this world and the vanity of it. Thirdly, we are deceived into surrendering the eternal for the temporal Every day we are tempted to sacrifice the eternal on the altar of today. Every day we are tempted to forget the eternal consequences that are at stake in our lives. Sin deceives us into a lethargy that takes every day for granted. We get so distracted with so many things that are good, things that are enjoyable, things that are not sinful in and of themselves. But we get so distracted by those things and taken under that we, we think that is life. And we think those things count for eternity. Jim Elliott said that he did not want to live. He did not want to live so that when he appeared before God, that the things that he treasured would not count for eternity. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jamelia said, what am I giving up? I'm not giving up anything. Hudson Taylor said the same thing. Someone asked Hudson Taylor, the missionary to, to China, said, what is the greatest sacrifice you ever made? Hudson Taylor said, I never made a sacrifice. I'm storing up for myself treasure in heaven. What possible sacrifice could I have been making? What was I losing? Jonathan Edwards was resolved to not be doing anything for which he would be ashamed as if it were the last moment of his life. These are all men who have lived with the eternal in mind over the temporal. And we need each other in each other's lives to remind us. I need that reminder. I need men and women in my life to encourage me to fix my eyes on eternity. Fourthly, sin deceives us into thinking that we can handle our sin on our own. The deceitfulness of sin makes us think that we are some type of superhero that can tie a bandana on our forehead and fight an army by ourselves. Sin tempts us into thinking, you don't need to tell people that you struggle with that. You got it. You can handle this on your own. No need to get other people involved. Sure, yeah, you failed. You failed again. That's fine. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. You'll, through determination, you'll be able to defeat this deceitfulness of sin in your life. You don't need to let other people in. 
you don't need to expose other people to the, the hideousness of sin in, in your own life. That's the lie of sin. The truth is we do need each other in our lives. We do need each other to, to handle the sin that we are tempted with on a daily basis. This cannot start at too young of an age. Young people begin now founding relationships that will count for eternity. Establish for yourselves bonds of faith that are strong where the, 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 the ones that you tie yourself to are going to push you on towards Christ. And that, that should be all of us, right? Maybe I can ask you, when was the last time you sat down with someone and told them about the sin that you struggle with? It's not an easy conversation. Fifthly, sin never delivers what it promises. Sin is deceitful and it promises what it cannot deliver. There is no joy. There is no lasting satisfaction to be found in sin. It will make you numb. It returns void. We need each other to be champions for righteousness and holding each other accountable and reminding that, look, there's no peace to be found there. There's no satisfaction to be found there. There's only death. And sixthly, not only does sin not satisfy, but as we see here, sin will harden your heart. Sin will harden your heart that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will make your heart callous. It will make you numb to the joy of salvation. The hardening here is in a passive voice. It is something that is done to you by sin. The more one drinks from the well of the flesh and of this world, the more it hardens us to the deceitfulness of sin. The more we forget how destructive the well we're drinking from is, how poisonous and disgusting the water is. One commentator said, a hardened attitude is not a sudden aberration, but a habitual state of mind. A hardened attitude is not a sudden aberration. Like I said, you don't wake up one day and say, I think I've been hardened. It happens day after day. If you play the guitar, which I don't, but I hear from people who do, you get calluses on your fingers from holding the strings down. And suddenly you don't have the feeling that you once had in the tips of your fingers from repeated playing of, of the guitar strings. And anyone who's worked with their hands, you can look at the hands of someone who works and see the calluses that have been built up over time. And that's what sin does in our hearts. It makes it hard that suddenly we're not sensitive to the effects of sin in our own life. But our brother, our sister is there to rip away the calluses. How do we stay sensitive to sin? How do we avoid these calluses? Through the exhorting of each other, through regular involvement in each other's lives. Now, what does this look like? What does this look like? Just a, a brief list that I came up with thinking through how this is lived out in our lives. How, how do we go about the business of exhorting one another? How do we, we, we warn each other about the, the deceitfulness of sin? Obviously, first of all, we must be present in each other's lives. Right? It's, it's kind of hard to exhort one another if you're not actually present with one another. Again, it is impossible to live a life of obedience that God calls us to if you are only with other believers one morning a week.
There is a need for regular interaction and, and encouragement. I know I need that. I need the time that I have with my men's discipleship group on Friday nights. I need that in my life. I need the encouragements of the text messages, of the phone calls on a regular basis. I need the notes that I receive in the mail. I need the the encouragement that I get from meeting with our Bible study every other Tuesday. I need those interactions that I have on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday evening. I need the interaction with my brothers on the deacon board on the first Tuesday of each month. (laughs) That we need those things in our life on a regular basis. One man said, it is impossible to exhort one another unless one is part of a fellowship. It is certainly easier for individuals to be misled in isolation from each other and from other Christians than sharing in fellowship with others. It's a, it's a simple thought. This is not rocket science. Secondly, we must bring truth to bear in one another's lives. It's not enough just to be together and say, how was your week? It's not enough to be together and say, looks nice outside. How about that rain? It's not enough to be together and talk about superfluous things. That's okay, but that's not the theme. It's not enough for us to be together without stirring one another up to love and good works, as we would see in Hebrews chapter 10. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of God dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we are together, God is the theme of our conversation, encouragement and building up of one another. We must make sure that is the backbone of our relationships. And thirdly, we must open up ourselves to each other. I asked a few moments ago for you to sit and to consider when was the last time that you talked with another believer about sin that you were struggling with. It's a difficult part because it requires a lot of humility. Because we want to keep those struggles to ourselves. We want to be the superhero that doesn't need anyone else's help. We want to be the good New Englander who's all set. That's, that's the, the joke in the deacons meetings, right? We talk to you folks and we see if you need any help. And what do we hear? I'm all set. I'm all set. You're not. You're not all set. You need each other in your life. If you are dealing with sin, you need someone else in your life to come down and to be in that muck with you to help lift you out of that and to deal with that temptation. More pain and suffering is allowed to happen because believers are too proud to communicate their struggles with one another. And if someone does communicate this to you, It is so important to remember that if someone comes to you and says, look, I'm struggling with this sin. This temptation has come up in my life. It is so important for you to continue to hold that person accountable. For some people, it is very difficult for someone to open up. And it can take all of the built up courage in our hearts to pull back the curtain and to show someone what is inside. And for that one moment, the curtain is pulled back and we say, please help me, encourage me, hold me accountable to the sin that I'm dealing with. And too often, the other person feels too awkward to ever ask them about it again. What if they say they're continuing to struggle with it? What do I do? If someone opens up to you, they are encouraging you into their lives to help hold them accountable to that sin.
Fourthly, we must support each other in prayer. This looks like praying for one another. Now you may think that you are thinking of someone and you're praying for them. And you want to tell them and you look, look, I've been praying for you. And you're like, that sounds patronizing. That, that sounds like, I don't, I don't want to let someone know that I'm praying for them. Like, you know, it, it sounds like I'm not really doing anything, but hey, I'll, I'll pray for you. But that's good. Let people know you're praying for them. Let people know you're praying for them when you're praying for them. Text message them, send them an email, call them, whatever. Let them know, look, I'm praying for you right now. You came up in my mind, in my heart, and I want to pray for you. And sometimes you might be the person who needs prayer. You're facing the temptation and the deceitfulness of sin in your life. And you need to throw out that that ring and, and have someone else take hold of it and hold on with you and say, look, I need you to pray for me right now. It's hard. Those lines of communication must be open. And if you're talking with someone, you know what I love seeing? One, one of the greatest things I love seeing is when we are together and two people are talking with each other and they stop and one person puts their hand on the other person's shoulder and says, let's pray. And in the middle of a room of people, there are two weirdos off in the corner praying with one another. I love that. I love that. If someone comes to you and says, look, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time. Pray. Pray right then. Don't say thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. You know, I'll, I'll keep you in my prayers. And, and that's a good thing. Do that. That's great. But stop right then and pray then. Like that, that's not normal to the world around us. But it's great. Fifthly, to have this attitude within us, we must have, be looking after the interests of others and not just ourselves. That this is a pattern of thought that must rise within our hearts. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 2, what we're going through in Foundations Bible study. You count others as more important than yourselves. You're looking after not your own interests, but the, after the interests of others. We're very selfish people, naturally. We think about ourselves and we think about how everything affects us. But what you must do is when you come into a room of believers, you're not thinking about, so who's going to say hi to me today? How am I going to be fed? How am I going to be encouraged? Who's going to say hi? Who's, you know, is is pastor going to come and say hi to me? Is is my deacon going to come and check up on me today? When you go into a room, you see other believers and you say, who can I reach out to? Who can I love? Whose interests are better than mine? And that's the call that we're had to have that we see in Philippians chapter two. And that is the mentality that Christ lived with. And that is the challenge and the example that we have to follow. Six, we must have the spiritual maturity to address sinful patterns or thoughts or behaviors in other people's lives. Pastor, I, I thanked him last Sunday evening for giving a great introduction to my message this morning. Um, it was very thoughtful of him to take a time out on a Sunday evening to prepare people. Uh, I would encourage you to go back if you weren't here um, and listen to uh, the, the message from last Sunday evening on Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, but that is that we are to be in a position to counsel someone who's dealing with sin, right? That you have to have the spiritual maturity to know what is the godly wisdom? What, what, what do they need to hear in this moment? How can I counsel their hearts? If you're not growing in grace and abounding in wisdom, then you don't have that in your toolbox to minister to someone else and to exhort them. And lastly, number seven, you must first remove the speck from your own eyes. There can be no room for hypocrisy. There is no room for the blind leading the blind into destruction. If you, in your own life, are not able to deal with the sin that is ravaging you, you are not well equipped to guide someone else through that process. 
Because you're threatened to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we must, as a church pursuit of righteousness and sanctification, we have to be dealing with sin in our own lives and immediately. F.F. Bruce said, In a fellowship which exercises a watchful and unremitting care for its members, the temptation to prefer the easy course to the right one would be greatly weakened and the united resolution to stand firm would correspondably be strengthened. That's what, that's the effect that we have in one another to build a united resolution to stand firm. And that is the theme of verse 14. Our third corporate mandate is that we are to endure to the end, endure to the end. Now I asked you to put a pin in the thought and a question that you may have earlier, but does this mean that we can lose our salvation? Does this mean that we are pray to wake up one day and no longer have the seal of the Holy spirit? We have become partakers in Christ. Verse 14, we share in Christ. Now this, if you are a Greek student, is the white whale that we all pursue. This is the perfect tense. A perfect tense is, if you're, if you're in Greek, this is, this is what floats your boat. Okay? This, is, this is what you live for. The perfect, this is a perfect active verb, which means that it is something that was accomplished at one point in the past, but it has an ongoing effect up to the present and through to the future. So when he says, we have become partakers in Christ, for we share in Christ, saying you have been brought into Christ and that has an ongoing effect that is unbroken to, up to today and ongoing into the future. That nothing can make you not a partaker in Christ if you are a partaker in Christ. This is a business term. It's a partner. The author is using language to convey a relationship between us and Christ that is binding. It's unalterable. We can rely on the faithfulness of Christ but we must abide by the terms of the agreement. What is the terms of the agreement? Holding fast. Holding fast. If indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. If indeed we hold fast. Faith is the root of salvation. Endurance is its fruit. Let me say that again. Faith is the root of our salvation, but endurance is the fruit of salvation. If we hold fast, firm, keep firm possession of it, we should have shared in Christ if we finish well. If we hold to our faith, he will hold us fast. And we don't have time. I wanted to go to Matthew chapter 13. It's a great parable that is really useful. And I would encourage you to, to take a look at that, but the parable of the soils and the seeds that are, are spread down and some, some sprout, but are choked out by the cares of life or taken away by the birds and Satan, but seek the good soil, seek the good soil. Now perseverance of the saints. This is a doctrine we're celebrating reformation day. It's a good reformation doctrine. They whom God has accepted and is beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. That is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about the perseverance of the saints. That you will, if you have been accepted by Christ, and called and sanctified by the Spirit of God, we cannot be totally or finally removed from the state of grace. 
That is the perseverance of the saints. God preserves us. As has been said many times, if we could lose our salvation, we would. (laughs) There isn't anyone who would keep it. There's a litany of verses we can go to Ephesians 1.13, if we, lose, uh, we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.29-30, the golden chain, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he's justified, he also glorified. Romans 8.37-39, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. These are all solid, biblical, foundational verses that communicate to us the permanence of our true salvation. But some of the passages that I love the most, I keep notes of this. When I see one, I write it down in my notebook. Verses of dual responsibility. The one that's most commonly known is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. There are two sides of that coin. Paul's saying, pay close attention to your faith. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. But ultimately, it is the sovereign God who is girding you and upholding you and keeping you for his good pleasure, for his sovereign purposes. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you were created by Christ Jesus for the purpose of exercising good works. A life of obedience, of fruit, which God prepared beforehand so that you may walk in them. Again, you were created for good works but God is the one who was there creating it and walking you through it. Jude chapter uh, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude is appealing to them, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he said, that sounds kind of theologically questionable. Keep yourself, like I can't keep myself. Verse 24, God is the one who will keep you from stumbling. The two sides right there where we are exhorted and commanded to maintain the faith that has been planted within us. But then God comes alongside and says, I'm holding you secure. I would encourage you when you see these moments of, of, of this divine dual responsibility where we are charged to do something, but it is God who girds us for that work. Make note of those. Those are precious. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. For we are looking to Jesus. And what what is it called, Jesus? The what? The author and finisher of your faith. Saying, look, run with endurance. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Because he's the one who began your faith and he's the one who's going to bring it to completion or perfection. Same thing. Obey because God is supporting you and building that within you. Now, Philippians chapter 2. I just thought of this. Like I said, in, in whatever you're generally teaching or preaching through, your mind just always goes back to that. Um, It's actually Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That with one mind, You are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Saying, live out your salvation. Let your life be worthy. The the Greek word there has, it's, it's like living out your citizenship in Christ. Live out this life before God. And you notice, this is corporate language that Paul is using here. 
similar to what we see in Hebrews. He said, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. This is unity. This is that we all share the same conviction, the same thinking. It's, it's the Greek word phreneo. That's the base of this, which is a thinking that will lead to a, lay, a way of living. It means if you're not living in this way, you can backtrack it and say, I'm not thinking in the right way. That you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We must pay close attention to the way that we walk. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, God is faithful to preserve and sustain us. And the fruit of our salvation is the endurance that he so richly supplies to us. But God has not left us empty handed or with nothing at our disposable at our disposal for this endurance. He has sovereignly placed us in his church. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He's equipped us with spiritual gifts to exercise and to use for the building up and the preservation of the church. Endurance is a corporate pursuit. We are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side. Now I encourage you, I want you to look around. I want you to look around at the people in this room. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. These are the tools that God is going to use in your life to hold you firm to the end. These are the people that God is raising in your life to exhort you about the deceitfulness of sin and to guard your heart from the hardening effect of sin. And these are the brothers and sisters that it is your responsibility to have that same effect in their life. They need you. I need you. And you need them. If, if we fail to serve and to be served by the church, then we do it not only at our eternal peril, but we do it at the eternal peril of those around us. The author of Hebrews closes this section by reminding us about what he said, what was said in Psalm 95. It says in verse 15, Today, Today, if you hear his voice, do not be hardened. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And he says, for, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter the rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 4, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. May God use this church to help deliver each other into the eternal rest of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this morning, even now, there are eternal consequences for what is being done in this very moment. Today is not about today. Today is about eternity. And I pray, Lord, that we, we would be about the business of exhorting one another, about building one another up, about warning each other, cautioning each other about the deceitfulness of sin, that we would 
seek to have that impact in someone else's life and that we would open up our own hearts to let others have that impact in ours. Lord, this is how you designed your church. May we be faithful to obey, to heed the warnings as long as it is called today. May we be encouraging and exhorting one another to lift our eyes, not to the seen, but to the unseen, to fix our eyes onto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that we may run the race that you have set before us with endurance and that we may corporately enter into your rest. Praise your name. Amen.